I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Brought to you by three history and geography enthusiasts in an internet-powered balloon, this podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne, broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. Today we'll be talking about Panama, a Central American nation uh, most famous for its canal that connects the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Located strategically on the tiny isthmus between Central and South America, Panama has been fought over by a number of different powers throughout its fascinating history. The country is dominated by a central spine of mountains and hills that forms the continental divide. Today, Panama is bordered by Costa Rica to the west, Colombia to the east, the Caribbean to the north, and the Pacific Ocean to the south. The capital, Panama City, is home to nearly half of the country's 3.9 million people. And if you're unfamiliar with the geography, just imagine the two continents of Central and South America hanging onto each other by a thread, and that thread will be Panama. Mark, do you want to give us a little bit of uh, background information about the early history of Panama? Sure. So, um, humans first got to the uh, to the Americas sort of 47,000 uh, to 15,000 years ago crossing over from Asia across the Bering Strait uh, across an ice bridge and then gradually moved further and further south, eventually reaching Panama. Um, unfortunately, as, as is often the case, there's not a, a, a lot of detailed history from uh, uh, pre-colonialization and, and so on, partially down to uh, lack of, of written texts and partially down to the civilizations being destroyed by a mixture of disease and, and, and uh, colonization. Um, there are two specific archaeological sites that have thrown up some really, really interesting stuff. Um, one of them is at El Caño, and they found these really amazing things. There was packets of stingray spines and blowfish poison. Um, they found... Uh, depictions of vampires and werewolves and a belt made of whale and jaguar teeth. Well, that's wow. interesting. And, yeah, this pretty amazing stuff. And, you know, so, some of the stuff that they found suggests that they they engaged in fishing quite a lot. I guess because of the, the, the structure of Panama, it has quite a lot of coastline uh, and it must be relatively sheltered. And it's full of, of uh, rivers as well. In between the mountains, there are rivers everywhere. That's, that's true as well. And another thing they found at these sites were um, camels. Uh, the remains of camels, which must have come from the North American uh, continent. And generally the stuff that they found show that there was a significant amount of trade between North and South America going through Panama. Uh, so it, it, it pretty much, by its geography, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily turned into a trade hub by the Europeans turning up and making it so, it already very much was so before anybody uh, from Europe turned up. 
Um, the other big site is uh, Sitio Conte, which is actually only about two miles away from uh, the El Cano site. And it's quite near uh, some of the rivers in Panama, some of the rivers that actually change course over time. And the, these rivers changing course had naturally excavated a lot of the artifacts from this area. And some of them uh, were actually presented at the eventual opening of the Panama Canal. Uh, these ancient artifacts just kind of washed up in the river in the process of uh, digging the canal. So it's, um, yeah, very, very varied, but very hard to make a, a sort of a, a clear narrative out of it. Um, they seem to exist in small tribal settlements, uh, a, thousand, a thousand people or so, ruled by chiefs, and there was lots of... Uh, uh, lots of remains found in, in the burial chambers, uh, of particularly of of other other people suggested to be slaves that were either executed in honor of the chief or you know general general graveyard area. It's it's kind of hard to tell. And as opposed to talking about the the actual practices of of the people back then, because it's very hard to talk about that. Um, there still exists today native populations, uh, including the, I believe they're called Ingabe. I might be pronouncing that entirely incorrectly. Uh, and today they, have, they still have their own language and uh, native populations make up uh, a significant percentage of the overall Panamanian population, about you know, 10 to 15% thereabouts. And the, the Nagabe still have their own language that 170,000 people still speak. They have this really, really interesting uh, sport uh, which is, it's, you know, part sport, part celebration, part uh, festival, I would say. And it's called the, it's called the Balseria. And it's basically a version of dodgeball, but where you hit somebody in the shins with a four-foot balsa stick until they basically give in. Sounds fun. Uh, wow. Yeah. I've actually, I found some videos of it online, and I, I was thinking of them, like, hitting, like, a, like, you would with a baseball bat, but it's actually more like chucking it like a javelin oh. at your legs, and uh, you have to basically jump out of the way. And um, the the rules, the only rules, are that you need to aim for below the knee, and if it is perceived by the the crowd, it seems to be a crowd enforced rule. If if they perceive that you are not playing fairly, they they might just beat you up a bit. Uh, so uh, that that's the that's that's the the sport. So obviously, modern day Panama, as much as um, the rest of Central America, is uh, Spanish speaking. How did uh, the Spanish influence Panama, Joe? Well, it was during the the age of discovery, as it's called. Um, depending on your point of view, it was a glorious era or a terrible one, uh, largely depending what continent you're from. Uh, but 1502 was the first time. Europeans explored the place. So a, a Spanish man called Rodrigo de, Bas, de, de Bastidas was the first person to explore a bit of what is now Panama. Uh, and also Christopher Columbus on his fourth voyage uh, explored some of it. So this is right back at the very earliest phases of Spanish exploration of, of the Americas. And this was really the first bit of the mainland of the American continents that the Spanish got to. And, and when you hear in pirate stories about the Spanish main this is Panama and northern Colombia and that kind of region. Um, because till that point, they'd been on, on islands like Cuba and Hispaniola out in the Caribbean. So things take a, an important turn when uh, in 1509, 1513, Vasco Nunez de Balboa 
became an important figure in the, in settling what is now Panama. Uh, he built the first permanent European settlement on the American continents at uh, Santa Maria del Antigua de Darien. And he was the first to cross the isthmus, is that correct, Joe? Yes, so as as part of his role as governor, he, he explored the area and he either wiped out local tribes or formed alliances with them. And eventually he heard the story from the son of one of the local caciques that uh, if you're so hungry for gold that you've come here to cause trouble in our country, I can point you to a kingdom that will satisfy your hunger. And he told them about this kingdom across the South Sea that uh, was teeming with gold. And uh, Balboa eventually follows the routes he's told about and follows his rumours and crosses the Isthmus. And is the first European to see what, what we now call the Pacific Ocean, but he called the South Sea. And in a, in a wonderful act of body off more than he could chew, he wades into the water with a sword and a, a flag with uh, Mary on it and claims the sea and all the lands surrounding it for the Spanish Empire. Which is a big. That's a lot of lands. That's a lot of lands. <laughs> I don't think he quite appreciated how how big of an ocean he was dealing with. Because you've got to remember, they thought that the East Indies were quite near to America. And in fact, many of them thought that the West Indies were the East Indies. So this was a this is a big claim. And across the sea, of course, is Peru and the Inca Empire. So they should have called him basically Balls Boa because he has huge, big Spanish balls to claim almost the entire world for Spain. Yep, uh, you could say that. Uh, he, he's uh, still remembered in Panama, though many streets are called after him. Uh, and the, the currency, in fact, is, is still called the Balboa. So he's a really important figure in being the first to the first European to see the value of this cross isthmus route. And that really is what Panama's value to the Spanish Empire in expanding into South America was. All of the gold and silver that was taken from Peru. It was 60% of it, it's estimated, passed through Panama. It would have been brought to what's now Panama City, uh, loaded onto mules and brought across land to um, Nombre de Dios or uh, Colón on the Atlantic side. And it was a long, gruelling journey. Many died, a lot of slaves were involved. And that was how the riches of South America were transported back to Spain. So this is... a from a very from the very earliest discovery by by Spanish uh, conquistadors, it was a vital part of the infrastructure of of empire. Um, and I just might mention here how slavery was an important part of how they built these roads and how they uh, connected these things and how they transported the treasures across the uh, the isthmus. But many slaves actually escaped into the dense jungle and formed their own communities. Uh, sometimes working with the indigenous people because they had a similar enemy. Um, and an important revolt was led in 1552 by a man called Bayano. And he's become kind of a folk hero uh, among people in Panama. And his group is called the Cimarrons. And in the end, they actually ended up forming independent regions and coming to some kind of arrangements with the largely white governments. Uh, just a question. Um, the slaves were being used to build the infrastructure for the Spanish... Were they being imported in from Africa or yes. the Spanish also take, taking slaves from South America as well? So initially they used the local Indians, as they called them, as slaves, but they worked them so hard that they largely died of European diseases. Um, so, Sorry, I yeah, asked. Yeah. Cheers. So they started importing uh, African slaves because they, 
I suppose valued them less. It, it was it's not a great period of human history in terms of uh, human rights. But as a result of all of these different groups, the Panamanian people are very ethnically diverse. Uh, still, mm. the largest black populations are around the what becomes the Canal region, uh, because a lot of the work was done there by slaves. Where you have more indigenous people in the the less exciting regions to to empire. So from the get go. This has been an important trade route, and controlling that trade route has is, is, is been of vital importance. The idea of a canal was floated by the Spanish, but an engineer tasked with seeing if it was possible uh, told the king, with all due respect, your majesty, this is beyond the, the powers of any prince to do in, in the 16th century. And so the idea was put to rest for a little while. And you mentioned uh, disease there, Joe. I guess that brings us on to our next point. Uh, I suppose there's a a long history in this area of uh, Westerners coming in and thinking that they can uh, conquer or make a difference here and being uh, laid low by a lot of the uh, Central American diseases, particularly malaria, I guess, at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely had a big impact. And um, malaria killed a huge amount of Europeans. Uh, But of course, the natives were more, more resistant to it. And the knowledge that it was related to mosquitoes only comes much later. So this has been a constant problem in this area. And can I just mention one more problem before we move on uh, that led to the decline of the importance of Panama as a trade route, which was piracy. Essentially, you've got your treasure fleets floating in in your harbours on the Atlantic side of Panama waiting to sail off, or you've got your gold waiting for a ship to arrive to take it. This is pirate heaven. And buccaneers and privateers were an important part of the ecosystem of the Caribbean. I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise glorifies this whole era. Um, you mentioning uh, that Panama was uh, pirate heaven, Joe, I think that I think that's you founding a religion. Uh, I think if you uh, if you go around telling people that they, they act in a certain way, they get to go to pirate heaven, I think you're going to have some people uh, emailing you back. That's, that, that's going to work out. Multiple R's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. R-men. R-men. <laughs> Our men, indeed. Uh, uh. Uh, so the next point we have is um, a very interesting, I guess, uh, point in Panama's history, which is uh, the settlement of Darien by Scotland, of all people. Did not see that coming. Don't see that coming. This is a twist. Uh, in 1690s, uh, the Scotland was, fair to say, at a low point. It had very poor relations with England at the time. And it suffered uh, a lot of crop failures, was uh, suffering from famine, very poor economy. And in response, the Scottish government formed what was known as the Company of Scotland, uh, which aimed to raise funds for Scotland itself through trade with other countries by essentially establishing itself as sort of a, a colonial power, much like England. Like a like a, an East India Company or a, exactly like that. that was uh, what the model that they tried to we're going to try and emulate was the East India Company uh, trading different goods throughout the world and William Patterson was one of the people that became involved in this he was a banker at the time and uh, turned the company's attention away from the likes of Africa and India and other established trading locations at the time and set, and uh, turned them towards Panama which he said would be a, a ver- very valuable trade route between the Atlantic and the Pacific, which, as we know now, it absolutely was. So in 1698, having successfully convinced 
the Company of Scotland to invest in Panama and try and establish a trade route through, through the Isthmus. A company goes from Scotland to Panama with around 1,200 men and about five ships uh, made up mostly of former soldiers. And apparently it was an awful, awful journey. A lot of people died on the way. To evade uh, British warships, they set off from the east coast of Scotland in Leith and had to go north around the top of Scotland. Because at this point, of... England and Scotland were separate kingdoms, right? Exactly. They exactly. shared a king because somebody had inherited someone else's kingdom. Yeah. But they were still separate and didn't didn't really get on. And the English and Spanish were at loggerheads at this point for a lot of different reasons, mostly to do with colonization in different areas. And, and piracy. And piracy. Every time uh, they tried to do something, the pirates of the other team would steal their stuff. It's... Yep, it's true. Uh, so the Scottish decided to sail around, up and around Scotland, uh, eventually arriving at Darien in Panama which is on the east coast of Panama. Uh, Luke, sorry, can I just make a prediction? My prediction is going to be that everything works out really, really well and everybody lives. That's my prediction. It's bold. It's out there. Prove me right, Luke. Go on. I'll try. I'll try. So they christened this new place Caledonia, which uh, is a historical Latin name for Scotland. So they, they say this is Caledonia and Scotland to rule here forevermore. That, that's definitely going to end well. I'm going to chime in with Mark here and I'm going to say definitely, you know, if you take a tropical place and call it after Scotland with no sense of irony, you're definitely going to succeed in your, your project. So the local um, natives won't, tra- won't trade with them at all. Uh, the Dutch, English or Spanish, all of whom had a presence in the area this time, either through piracy, as you mentioned, Joe, or uh, through their own trading routes, would none of them would trade with the Scottish for fear of antagonizing other large powers. Malaria infests their camp, starvation sets in, and a lot of people die. About 10 a day, I think, was the, at the peak. Uh, 10 people a day were dying in this camp. Uh, that which, seems like too many. Yep. Yeah, um, of 1,200 people, it's not going to take you very long to, uh, hmm. to completely... Yeah, that's the, that's going to completely ruin your colony. So after about eight months, uh, the colony is abandoned uh, and roughly 200 to 300 people, uh, survivors of the colony, flee to New York. And soon after, uh, two resupply ships arrive from Scotland, a sort of second wave, I suppose, uh, from Scotland to resupply the initial colony and find decimation, uh, graves, shallow graves, dead bodies, and... Um, are somewhat perturbed by what they find a completely <laughs> abandoned. Uh, I, I hope that they declared it as such. Yes. Yeah. Oh, all these all these graves and piles of uh, maggot riddled. Oh, somewhat right? perturbed. Uh, bring here. Uh, yeah, perturbed. I'm perturbed. Yes. Uh, to make matters even yeah. better, uh, they manage to accidentally set fire to one of their two ships, which burns in the bay. The survivors of that disaster decide to uh, flee to Jamaica where they're not allowed to dock and disease, oh, continues, can, disease continues to run rampant on the ship and kills many more people. So at this point, those who had fled to New York decided to turn around and go back to try and resupply... The, the resupply ships. Resupply the resupply ships, indeed. Uh, and they find not only the more graves, uh, fresh graves, but a, a burned uh, wreckage of one of the ships, one of the resupply ships, and the colony once again abandoned. 
so before word could reach Scotland, 1,000 people, 1,000 extra people set sail for Darien again, or Caledonia, in 1699. These people did manage to, I suppose, establish some kind of a settlement there, although they did, again, struggle a lot with disease and struggle to trade with anyone, basically, in the area. So after a, roughly a year, uh, they have built a fort and they have sort of fortified the place somewhat, but are finding it very, very difficult. And the Spanish Spanish settlers in the area decide to attack them. At this point, their morale is pretty low, as you can imagine. And uh, the Scots effectively just give up, surrender. That, that's, that's the wisest move they've made so far, I think. So out of two and a half thousand settlers that, eventually, that did set off to... Uh, to colonize this place, uh, just a couple of hundred survived in the end. And this played a major role, big role in Scotland signing the Act of Union with England. They'd effectively spent all the money that they were able to raise from wealthy Scottish landowners, Scottish bankers, all were bankrupted by the scheme. And Scotland effectively were forced to give up their independence and sign the Act of Union with England in, as a result of this scheme which uh, has remained so ever since. Well, so so Panama has a lot to answer for. It does, uh, it does. Well, I suppose uh, this guy, William Patterson, has a lot to, a lot to answer for. For uh, You wonder what might have happened had Scotland a, uh, tried to... That's a really bad business venture. It is, it is. <laughs> like, so bad that you lose your country. Yeah, but bang... Yep. That's pretty bad. That's, that's, that, bad that's up there. Colonizing, Patterson. So, bad colonizing, Patterson. Bad colonizing. Exactly. Bad, pal- bad, <laughs> bad Patterson. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm just picturing all these Spanish guys on a golden boat. Oh, oh God, were you guys trying to trade? Oh, we didn't hear you. We were counting our gold. <laughs> oh, you had malaria. Oh, that's a that's a that's a bummer. Uh, good. That's grief. rough. Malaria's rough. <laughs> Sorry, go on. So after that venture uh, didn't really result in a Scottish Panama by any means. Uh, the Spanish continued, almost oblivious to these attempts, I suppose, to just rule the place. And in the early 1800s, uh, you get uh, Simon Bolivar going around South America leading revolutionary movements in Venezuela and Colombia, uh, various other countries. And Spain is at a weak point. So it actually loses control of this whole region. Um, so... The Panamanians took advantage of this instability. So their uh, their governor, who had fled from, I think, Colombia, where he was situated, he, he fled from that place because they lost Spanish lost control. He moved to Panama. He was then called away to put down some pesky Ecuadorians who were having their own revolution. And in his absence, his deputy kind of went, Independence, Panama? Will we, will we just, will we have some independence? Um, in response to this uh, kind of brave shout for independence from a, a, city, a town called Villa de los Santos, they kind of said, we want independence, and then started bribing all the local Spanish troops into not fighting them. And they had a bloodless coup. So the new head of state, Fabrega, wrote to Simón Bolivar and uh, said, hey, we're independent, can we join your new, your new project? Can I just uh, interject to call this a super team of sorts? Sure, yeah, yeah, if you like. Yes, I just like the term. We've, we've used it before. Uh, occasional international super teams. Yeah, uh, yeah a super team of, of what is now Colombia, Venezuela, 
Panama and a few other countries. And he kind of said, we want in, please. That wasn't Bolivar's original plan, but uh, Fabrega said, we, you know, we, we'd be good Colombians because they were calling the country Gran Colombia um, after Columbus, obviously, is kind of this, this union of South American countries free of the shackles of the Spanish. And Bolivar's response is spectacular. So people wrote great letters back in the 1800s. <clears throat> it is not possible for me to express the feeling of joy and admiration that I have experimented to the knowledge of that Panama, the centre of the universe, is segregated by itself and freed by its own virtue. The act of independence is the monument most glorious that any American province can give. Everything there is addressed, justice, generosity, policy and national interest. Transmit then, you to those meritorious Colombians, the tribute of my enthusiasm by their pure patriotism and true actions. Ugh, what a waffler. So, as a result um, of all of this, Panama becomes part of Gran Colombia. And when that country falls apart because of disputes over whether there should be a central government or a federal government, it, some of the federal states go their own way, and that's where Venezuela and so on come from. Uh, Panama stays in what we now call Colombia uh, up until the mid 1800s, uh, the, the late 1800s. Sorry, and um, this is when the US start getting interested in the region. Uh, I just wanted to bring this up because you you mentioned uh, I know you're kind of only saying it in passing that uh, Panama were kind of making the case for them being good potential Colombians. But looking at, at their timeline, they were really terrible Colombians. They, they were constantly uh, angling for, you know, extra independence and allowing the Americans to have more influence mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, in uh, 1846, they signed a, a treaty with the U.S., um, I think, giving them a lot of freedom. Well, but, but that was that was Colombia signed a treaty with the U.S. Oh, well, I, I guess. I guess, yeah. Uh, so it was they wanted to build a railway so the people getting to the gold rush in California could, could sail down to Panama, get a train, the Transcontinental Railroad. This was the shortest Transcontinental Railroad available, like it's about 60 kilometres or something, as opposed to the one spanning the US or Canada. Mm. And uh, yes, yeah, so the US really wanted this railroad and they wanted it to be unobstructed. So they signed a treaty with Colombia that allowed them to basically militarily intervene if anyone ever tried to stop the railroad working. <clears throat> All right, so we got a railway in the area, uh, but everybody is, I guess, at this point, scrambling to try and build a canal uh, through Panama to allow ships to pass from the Pacific into the Atlantic and vice versa. Uh, we're going to get into that just in a second. Okay, we're back. So we got uh, a lot of people trying to build a canal uh, through this continental divide between Central and South America. Uh, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about who was the first to attempt this Herculean task? It was those darn Frenchies. Uh, the French, um, as seemingly was the style at the time, founded a company with a lot of state support. Uh, and a huge amount of uh, patriotic fervor behind it to try to uh, finance and raise funds for a Panama Canal. 
This whole thing was led by Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was already enormously famous and well-regarded because of the success, uh, both uh, physically and financially, of the Suez Canal. Suez Canal had, had worked out very, very well for the French and had made a lot of people very wealthy. And He sounds like a good candidate for building canals. Natural. Yes. He's like yeah. Mr. Canal. Uh, you, so, you want to connect two oceans? Go to Ferdinand. <laughs> basically. And so uh, they they kind of... They, they got started around the uh, uh, 1880s, uh, early 1880s, I think. And uh, it turns out that Canals in Panama are a lot more difficult to build than canals in the Middle East. Um, mainly... I, I, I read somewhere that he visited at dry season and went, oh, this will be fine. And then he sent the engineers back at rainy season and things were a little bit different. Yeah. I'm, uh, and he hadn't really thought that through. They, they estimated that it was going to take somewhere between 8 to 12 years to build a canal. And, you know, as you suggest, one of the big problems down there is the... Um, is the levels of rain. So landslides uh, are very, very common. The earth is very, very wet, so it's, it's heavier, harder to move. And the rivers often change course. And if you are building a man-made river, you do not want a river to change course to be on top of your head. Uh, it is uh, a very, very challenging thing. And completely beside all of that, there is again the malaria and the disease and the humidity. Um, there was a quotation I saw from uh, Harper's Weekly where uh, there was a, a cartoonist, uh, Thomas Nast, uh, who wondered aloud whether Mr. de Lesseps is a canal digger or a grave digger. So many people perished in this uh, ultimately failed attempt to build a canal. Uh, the number is estimated at somewhere around 20,000 people died trying to build a canal over these, uh, this initial attempt over the first couple of years. We thought Darium was Just bad. the initial attempt. Yes, just in this, this French attempt. Um, and a, a big problem that the French program had was that they were, or at least De Lesseps was insistent, they build a sea level canal like they did in Suez. So, you know, dig everything down to sea level. And if you're trying to get through an intercontinental divide, remember this is two tectonic plates, the whole North American continent, the whole South American continent crushing up against each other. They've made some significant uh, raised ground there in the middle. And yep. he that's was... where you got the, the places dominated by mountains yep. and such because, uh, as you said, Joe, you got two massive tectonic plates. Just buckling into uh, each other. Just buckling against each other. And the French essentially said, just cut down the middle yeah, of that. Yeah, just go straight you? through. No problem. Uh, so his insistence on that really was was probably a mistake and um, a big, I, I would argue, a big, a big source of why it has failed, as well as the disease and so on. Um and this essentially bankrupted loads of people, not unlike the Darien scheme, in that it had it was called the Panama Affair, the Panama Scandal in France, where loads of people got caught up in massive debts, and many were put in prison for their debts, including um, uh, Monsieur Eiffel of Eiffel Tower fame, who lost loads of money and couldn't pay his debts. To to um, add on another uh, ladle of 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 crap basically to this to this crap pile that the initial attempt was um part of the reason it was called the the panama affair and the panama scandal is that it came out that uh there was yeah enormous corruption on the french side that uh uh government institutions were funneling money into this uh and it was uh a lot of bribes had been paid and it was it was 
it, it kind of ruined uh, Ferdinand de Lesseps' name in terms of just how sleazy and how unpleasant, though. I mean, completely apart from the fact that 20,000 people died trying to build a, a ditch, basically. Uh, it, it kind of soured people's view of French politics, that it, it's this kind of uh, sleazy, disgusting kind of uh, uh, loss of innocence, I guess, in, in, in French political circles. So... A solution to this problem of massive debts was to form a, a new company of the Interoceanic Canal, I think is what they called it. And the aim of this company, it bought the assets of the old company at a cut-down price. This is kind of debt restructuring, as we might think of it in the modern world. And their goal was to try and sell off the assets. So they, they bought into maintaining the railway and also maintaining these you know, the preliminary canal building and equipment in good enough condition that they could find a buyer. Uh, and in 1904, it would revert to Colombian ownership under the deal they'd signed with Colombia. So this, the existence of this company, which um, w- was represented by a guy called Bonau Varilla as an investor, is important to what happened next and the successful completion of a canal. Because the US, as we say, then got involved. It was very keen on the the Transcontinental Railroad, it had done great work in connecting the east and west coast of America because it's much easier to transit than the centre of America, which was still unincorporated. It was just wide open plains with no uh, with no states at this point. Yeah. Um, so you would, you um, people hoping to travel to California, for example, Joe, would just yep. uh, take a boat down and then, from Florida or somewhere on the east coast as far as Panama or somewhere else in Central America, mm-hmm. uh, jump across... And then get a boat up to San Francisco, California, somewhere. Yeah. So uh, that and the, in the eighteen forties, the and eighteen fifties, the gold rush in California brought, I think, millions of people through that region and lots of money into the area. So Panama wasn't opposed to the idea either. But because of the French attempt and the disagreements with Colombia, America was looking at a a Nicaraguan canal, maybe, which is another position along the isthmus. You could possibly build something. Um, but eventually, they came to an agreement with Colombia to build a canal, but the Colombian government or the Colombian Senate didn't approve it. And this really annoyed Theodore Roosevelt, who was president at the time. He's a brilliant character. Oh, he's, the best. I mean, he's, the, he is. he's the only person whose Wikipedia introductory paragraph points out that he had he was known for his robust masculinity. <laughs> so. I think if you can achieve nothing else in your life... Robust uh, masculinity. Yeah, not just masculinity, but robust. Uh, so he was a he was a kind of a big go-getting kind of president. He was a very imperialist president. He liked to project American power around the world. And he was very keen on getting this canal built. So when his deals with Colombia to do so... This is kind of his pet project. When his deals with Colombia to do so fell apart, he was able to be convinced that maybe there was another way to achieve this goal. Uh, other than what he'd been pursuing. So under the 1846 treaty, America had been guaranteeing the safety of the railroad region and putting down local uprisings. And Bonau Varilla, the French investor from this French company, also happened to represent the interests of Panamanian separatists as a diplomat in America. And he kind of met with the president and the secretary of state and he went, how about you don't put down the next uprising? that I funded. 
You know, if you didn't put it down, then maybe the new government might consider signing a treaty with you to let you build a canal. Which is all a bit dodgy, if we're honest. Um, So they came to this agreement. In 1903, there was an uprising of Panamanian separatists. And instead of doing their traditional role of putting it down, the Americans kind of put some ships out in the bay and stopped the Colombian fleet coming. And Panama became independent. America recognises it almost immediately, along with a few other countries, including the French and I think the British. And um, they were very willing partners in the negotiations to build a canal with, with, with terms that weren't great. Why Colombia had, had struggled to agree these terms was America wanted a an eight kilometre zone either side of where they were going to build a canal to be essentially sovereign American territory. Um in perpetuity. That's very valuable land. The, yeah. In perpetuity is a long and time. It is a long time. So it was a big ask and the new Panamanian government were, were keener on it than the, the old Colombian government. Uh, so really, Panama's independence was won by American change of policy. And the canal is central to why this happened. So from 1903 to 1914, construction of this canal took place. The Venezuela, or the Panamanian government was given $10 million in gold coin at the start and also a quarter of a million every year uh, as, as part of this deal. And an important part of why this succeeded is the structure of the canal and advances in public health. So uh, there had been the discovery in Cuba that there was a relationship between mosquitoes and and malaria and yellow fever, which had killed a huge amount of the uh, workers in previous attempts to build canals. Yellow fever, we should we should just note, Joe, um, is not a problem for natives or local people, I suppose, because if you're exposed to it, I think under nine months of age or something like that, uh, it's relatively harmless. Whereas if you uh, are exposed to it as an adult, it, it's lethal. Right, that sounds... Like the at least there's one disease that works the other way. I mean, mostly it was Europeans bringing influenza to to Central America. So you know, yep. a bit of revenge seems fair. Exactly uh, in the global scheme of things. But um, so that they there was a military doctor who had been in Cuba and he was brought in to essentially advise on how to clear the swamps and make make it much safer to build the canal. So that had a huge effect on the health and sanitation in the whole country. Uh, And that's an ongoing effect, which is a a good effect of the canal building. But it also meant all of the people building the canal didn't die. And it was succeeded in, what's that, 11 years, which is pretty good. Um, Initially, locals were brought in to do the building, but eventually it was decided that Americans and also workers from the Caribbean would do it instead. And there was a quite distinct racial segregation between the gold roll workers, who were white Americans or white Northern Europeans and silver roll workers who were black uh, Caribbean people or Southern Europeans like Italians and Spaniards. So there was this very distinct racial divide because a lot of the people administering the building of the canal were from the American South, which was ruled along those lines. So that's kind of a, a dark aspect of the, of the, uh, the era. But it finally did get um, built. It did get built, and it, the 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 construction 
the difference between this plan and the French plan was they they gave up on a sea level canal. They built a a man-made lake along the Chagres River, uh, which is called Gatun Lake. It's a massive lake. At the time, it's the biggest man-made lake ever. Uh, they just flooded whole valleys. And so now it's a much more straightforward transit. You have the Atlantic side, which is at Colón, which is uh, Spanish for Columbus. Um, interestingly, the Atlantic port is further west than the Pacific port, uh-huh. which is kind of cool. This makes... The Isthmus of Panama, the only place in the world where you can see a sunset in the Atlantic and a sunrise in the Pacific at the same time, I think. Yeah, I, 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 that's like rubbing your belly and patting your head. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's some kind of like mental gymnastics <clears throat> you do, but it, it's the thing that you shouldn't be able to do ever. Yeah. You can do it at Panama. Exactly. Uh, it, it's a bit bizarre. Um, and they, yes, yeah, so you have locks rising you from the Atlantic level up 26 meters so there's a series of I think, three or four locks that get the boats, the ships from Atlantic sea level up into the Gatun Lake level. Then you're brought along through this massive lake. Uh, through They cut through a mountain or two. And then you're brought down a series of two sets of locks uh, through the Microflores Lake and back down to the Pacific Ocean level at Panama City uh, at the port of... Um, the port is called Balboa, I think. So you effectively lift and the ships, like instead of what the French were trying to do, over yes, the mountain, as opposed to what the French were trying to do, which is just, as you said, a sea level canal. So just cut right down through the mountains. This system effectively yeah. lifts the ship up over the mountains uh, using the locks, mm-hmm. which is uh, yeah, and and using this this yeah, man-made lake, which is still the system that's in place today. It's an impressive feat of engineering, uh, and the way people traverse the canal, they're charged by the tonnage of their ship. Um, the ships go one way at certain times a day, one way at the other times a day, and then there's some periods when they can go either way, depending on busyness. It's m- more than 15,000 ships make this eight-hour journey every year through about 65 kilometres of canal, which is a huge amount of commerce. I'm watching, there's, there's these videos out there, these kind of time-lapse videos of the canal. Either transiting the canal is impressive, but also just watching a fixed point in the canal and all these container ships passing in and out and rising up and down in the locks is staggering. Just the amount of uh, the amount of stuff that's passing through this point. It's a really important point of of the world. Uh, you know, when Bolivar called it the centre of the universe, he wasn't far wrong um, in terms of shipping and commerce. Just a, just a fun fact I want to insert here, Joe. I don't know if you read about it. Um, Richard Halliburton was a guy uh, who actually swam the canal uh, I don't know if many people have done that, but he was uh, he was the first to do it, I believe, and uh, was charged was charged what eighty cent or something, thirty six cents, which I think is the lowest anybody's ever been charged to pass through the canal because he he didn't weigh that many tons. So uh, exactly, it, it exactly. seems a fair. And it, there's also interesting things where if you're carrying oil, it's going to cost you more than if you're carrying gas, even if the gas might be more valuable because oil is heavier. So that this kind of whole people are unsure, but if tonnage is the fairest way to do it, and we should probably shout out the, the, the Stuff You Should Know podcast about the Panama Canal. It goes into a lot more detail than we are. It's, yes. it's, it's really good. Um, so, yeah, if you're, if you're interested... In uh, just the canal and not the country more generally. Like, if you just want to yes. know about the canal... <laughs> but before you listen to their podcast, listen to all of, of ours first, of course. course. Uh, Indeed. So the, the Americans controlled this, this canal zone for quite a long period. Like, in perpetuity didn't turn out to be in perpetuity. But... Um, Tensions kind of rose at various points. So around World War II, there was issues 
because the president of Panama was essentially a fascist and America I think I think we can go so far as to call him a straight up yeah. Nazi. I think it's pretty much uh, he was he was beyond fascist, full blown Heil Hitlering Nazi. So America wanted to ensure the neutrality of the canal and the ability of their their commerce and their military vessels to pass through it. But the guy eight kilometers either side of them was a fascist. So this was an issue that uh, meant World War Two was a bit messy diplomatically at least it's good that you actually bring up this guy joe uh because i mean the whole of the 20th century is is a, a messy enough period politically in panama and it this particular guy his name is uh, arnulfo arias he is a large part of a lot of that he was president uh, three separate times and each of those three times he was ousted uh he was never defeated in election in that way he was always just removed from power um, so he was elected and then people went, oh, not a, we forgot about that. We'll have to get rid of him again. Well, it seems that he, he's always been very popular with the electorate, but it's just, you know, oh, external oh, influences have required that he, he be removed sometimes. Also, his brother was also president two more times. And after he passed away in 1988, he, uh, his wife became the first female president of Panama for a, a good five years as well. So... This guy is a, a good prism through which to see, you know, a, a lot of the, the 20th century politics of Panama and is characterized by lots of corruption, lots of secret police, lots of unpleasant stuff. Uh, not, not, not very positive. Yeah. Um, anyway. And this is all kind of, <laughs> this tension about the canal zone and the US occupation, albeit through a legal treaty, but their occupation of this big lucrative chunk of Panama. Uh, culminates in an event called Martyr's Day. Uh, I'd just like to point out before I explain that one that the Canal Zone motto is is a brilliantly optimistic motto. It's the land divided, the world united. Which I think is a beautifully optimistic, nice. um, yeah, optimistic vision for a place that actually didn't turn out great. So, um, yeah, in 1964 there was this bizarre incident where uh, J- John F. Kennedy had, President John F. Kennedy of America had decreed that in order to ease some tensions, everywhere there was a US flag flown in the in the canal zone, there would be a Panamanian flag flown too. Yay, equality. Uh, even though they weren't sovereign over the area, it would make everyone feel happier. I think was the idea, because this place had its own police and had a US uh, Marines. And like, you know, John McCain, uh, who was a senator in, in the United States and ran for president, in 2008? Yep, 2008 against Obama, yeah. He, 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 was, he, was, he was born in the Panama zone as, a, as the son of a military man. So, like... <clears throat> uh, I, I heard from a reputable source that he's a coward. Just, uh, if Trump says it, that's good enough for now, me. Now, now. Anyway, go on. Uh, so, a lot of uh, Americans lived there, but they couldn't own property there. They were there literally on a temporary basis, and they, they would never be re- residents of the Canal Zone. It was a really strange arrangement. Um, but this whole double flag thing didn't really work out and then Kennedy was killed and the following administration wasn't didn't see it as being as important so what eventually happens is they just started not flying that many flags at all except on military bases and one high school in the canal zone were very proud of their American identity and they went out and ran a star-spangled banner up the flagpole in opposition to the kind of rules some kids from a nearby Panamanian high school 
walked across the border, which was unpleased, so it was a perfectly free border, with their own flag, which had been involved in some previous riot, in order to raise it up the flagpole and take down the American flag. Like, these are all teenagers having a standoff about nationalism. It was really bizarre. Um, and the police trying to keep everyone calm and stop anything bad happening. And there was a scuffle of some sort. Uh, accounts differ, but somehow the Panamanian flag ended up being torn, which was seen as kind of flag desecration. And it led to riots. And by the end of this chaos, you know, this broke out all over, uh, at least all over the capital, I don't know, if all over the country, but uh, there were crazy riots by the end of which 22 Panamanians were dead and three US soldiers were dead. So this kind of was the height of tensions and this is when it really became essential to negotiate a new solution. Okay, so we got very, very high tensions in Panama, a lot of unrest in the country and a strong US presence. So we'll see how that all worked out after this quick break. Alright, so Joe, you mentioned uh, the riots that killed quite a few Panamanians and uh, a couple of US soldiers before the break. How did, uh, how were those tensions resolved? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, Panama immediately cut off diplomatic ties to the US and said it wouldn't reinstate them until there was some kind of agreement on the future of the canal and on transferring it back to Panamanian ownership. Was the canal still operating at that time? Yeah, yeah, you know, the US Army were still running it. Um, they just weren't talking to their neighbours. Uh, and of course, back in the US, was a lot of upset about this because they felt we built the bloody thing. You know, it's ours. They gave it to us. That's their problem if they don't like what their ancestors did, uh, particularly among conservatives in Congress. So it was a, a tense period. There was a treaty offered in 1967 immediately after the... the um, Martyr's Day, as it's called, and commemorated as. Um, but that wasn't to the satisfaction of Panama, so it, it fell. And it took another 10 years till the treaty was eventually signed uh, between President Carter and Omar Torrijos, who was a... He wasn't the president of Panama, but he was the strong man, the military leader. He was kind of a dictator type. He was uh, His formal position was the head of the National Guard, um, and he had other self-imposed titles such as Maximum Leader of the Panamanian Revolution and Supreme Chief of Government. Both of which are excellent titles, yeah. Mm. Both good names. And by all, all accounts, he was reasonably well regarded by his people, despite not being elected. Uh, and so he put these treaties to a referendum. Uh, and there were two. One about neutrality of the canal, so that everyone would still be allowed to use it without fear or favour. Uh, and the second was about the canal sovereignty. And this is where they agreed that from 1979, the canal zone would cease to exist. It would become Panamanian territory, except for a few military installations and a few canal-related buildings. And then gradually over the following years until the millennium, until the 31st of December 1999, to be precise, they would hand over everything to Panama and Panama would run the show. So it, it was a long-term pr- project and uh, this was agreed and there was a big turnout for the for the referendum and, and 
both treaties were passed. So this was a new arrangement and everyone was reasonably satisfied with it and society moved forward with Torrios at his head for the next decade or so. Yeah, Torrios was a, a big figure <laughs> in Panama, I guess. He's still very well regarded. Uh, as you said, Joe, he, he was never officially elected and took power in a, a military coup, bloodless coup. He was a champion of the poor, I suppose, who had been long oppressed in Panama. The best name that I, I could come up with for him was a, a Robin Hood dictator who effectively uh, took from the, the rich, uh, taxed the rich very heavily and, and sort of basically punished them uh, and took a lot of their wealth and, and distributed it among the poor people of, of Panama. Yeah, a, pop, a populist dictator. If you, if you want to be a dictator, kind of note to listeners who have this intention, you know, there's more poor people than rich people. So if you wanna, if you want people to support you, then you be populist. Caesar and you know the French Revolution and oh, like a lot of revolutions are, you get the poor on your side, you murder the rich and take all their stuff. It's um, it's an established trope. So yeah, Torrios uh, died suspiciously at the age of fifty-two in a in a plane crash. He died with. Um, two pilots and four of his aides on a small plane uh, that crashed, I think, shortly after takeoff. Uh, and Panama's radar technology at the time uh, meant that the plane wasn't reported for reported missing for up to 24 hours and that the crash site wasn't found for a few days after that. So, uh, yeah, he was a big loss to Panama at the time. And there were a lot of people speculated that maybe there had been a bomb or uh, that this, this uh, plane crash was somehow politically motivated because he had been so harsh on uh, the political elite uh, of, of Panama at the time and the, and the, the wealthy, wealthier classes. So the suspicions about Torrio's death may well have been well-founded. Uh, in years to come, it would emerge that uh, a, an enterprising uh, man by the name of Manuel Noriega may have been recruited by the U.S. government to remove Torrijos. And as it happened, Noriega happened to be the, uh, the general successor to Torrijos. There was one or two uh, uh, interim leaders for a period of maybe a year or so, but uh, Noriega came in afterwards and, and firmed, firmed his leadership. Noriega himself has a very interesting past. He uh, was professional military all the way through, went to a uh, military... Um, uh, school in, in Peru, uh, officer's candidate school there. He was then uh, trained in a U.S. military school in the Canal Zone. Um, and he also apparently trained in something called PSYOPs, Psychological Operations, which sounds terrifying, frankly, in North Carolina in the U.S. Um, in his 20s, he was likely recruited in a, in a soft way by the CIA to be a, a general informer and a, a source of information. And as the years went on, this relationship became formalized and he actually started to get uh, direct payments from them. Uh, the scale of these payments is a, a, a topic of some dispute. The US government say no more than 300,000. He himself says probably closer to about 10 million. Um, he he did quite That's a bit of a disparity. He did quite well out of the relationship with the U.S. government, either way, up to a certain point. And Mark, I'm sure he he was always loyal to the American senators as a result of that, and there was never oh, any misunderstandings. Uh, this is 
this is such a, such a mess. Um, so he he follows Omar Torrijos, and similarly quite quite populist, um, but probably a bit stronger on on the authoritarian side. Uh, a lot more secret police and so on. He doesn't have any of the uh, arguably positive credits that Torrijos had of you know a bit of liberalization uh, in the media and so on. In 1983, he uh, replaced Torrijos' uh, successor as the head of the National Guard. In 1984, there was an election held, uh, actually with our old friend Ar- Arnulfo uh, Arias. Oh, he's back. Yeah, he was back. He came back for uh, to, to try to be president for a fourth time. Uh, and actually, apparently, massively won the popular vote. And uh, um, Noriega basically just changed the result uh he 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 didn't really uh worry too much about it he changed the results and installed his own guy in 1983 he signed a lot of uh, very favorable agreements in favor of the united states which kind of gave him a bit of uh a bit of credit with them to you know govern as he saw fit so he's able to get away with this uh pretty obvious uh, uh election uh fraud also um and this may have been around this time but probably had been going on for quite a long time. He was a, probably the main uh, mover of drugs in Panama. He was the biggest drug dealer uh, in, in that area of the world uh, and had a very strong relationship with the uh, Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar, who's probably the most famous uh, uh, drug dealer as a part of that group. And yeah, so there's all of these different aspects to it. There's the secret police, the, the frauding of elections, in 1985, there's a. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into the details of what actually happened because uh, it's it's so distressingly grim. I would prefer not to. Uh, the information's out there if you if you really want to know what happened. But uh, it was a, a, a outspoken critic of of Noriega called uh, Hugo Spadafora, who uh, had trained as a, a medic in in Italy and had fought in a lot of uh, South American civil conflicts and was seen as kind of a uh, a prominent voice in in Central American politics, and he returned to to Panama. His head was never found. Uh, his body was found trussed up in a U.S. postal bag. From a uh, call that was listened into by authorities, probably American, uh, Noriega was in Paris at the time, and he was speaking with uh, one of his local uh, chiefs, a man by the name of Cordoba, and Cordoba said to him over the phone. We have the rabid dog, uh, meaning, assumedly, uh, Mr. Spadafora. And Noriega's response was particularly chilling. Uh, it was, and what do we do with rabid dogs? Which was essentially seen as, as Noriega giving the, um, giving the order to kill him. So it's a, it's, it's a short period of time between 1983 uh, and 1989 when things came to a head. Uh, at this point, the American government seemed to see Noriega as, as more of a liability than anything. He had this huge uh, uh, drug trafficking enterprise. He was taking money from the U.S. government. And then in, uh, I think it was in a Florida court, he was indicted for his uh, drug smuggling. And this led to something called Operation Just Cause. That's always a suspect name for an operation. I mean, I mean, with with good reason. I mean, you you look at uh, what was the uh, the name of the operation of the U.S. government going into uh, Iraq it was uh, Operation. 
enduring freedom or Iraqi freedom, and it, it, it didn't turn out that way. Similarly, Operation Just Cause was probably called so because it was universally condemned by the UN. Uh, they saw it as a complete, uh, completely flagrant flouting of international uh, international laws, uh, and both both uh, both both invasions were done by a Bush. Uh, this was uh, oh, this Herbert H. Walker. H.W. Bush. Yeah. Yes, exactly, Herbert Walker. Um, Operation Just Cause was an invasion uh, of twenty-seven thousand troops. And a lot of, you know, really new high-tech uh, hardware. It was the first time that the Apache helicopter, which is pretty iconic, was used. Considering it was an invasion, uh, definitely there were, there were casualties, uh, particularly a, a quite poor civilian uh, neighborhood was, uh, was burnt, uh, I think, accidentally. It wasn't, it wasn't that a fire was set, it was just cost fire. I think there were mostly uh, wood cabins, so it didn't... Exactly, didn't exactly. And the, the entire aim of this... Uh, this invasion was both to protect, again, the U.S. interest in the canal, but also because Noriega, because he had been a CIA asset, uh, they were very concerned about um, all of the stuff he probably knew about them. He had actually, there were, there were photos of him meeting with George Herbert Walker Bush uh, in, uh, in previous years as he was, uh, uh, he was an important uh, vice president in the past. So they, they invaded to capture Noriega. Uh, Noriega, knowing this, uh, went on the run. And he went to the Apostolic Nunciature of the Holy See, which is longhand for the, the Vatican Embassy. He turned up there and gave the, uh, the local Monsignor, Monsignor Laboa, he gave him two options. Either I go and fight a guerrilla war and kill many more people, or you give me asylum. And Laboa only had minutes to make the decision and did what he thought would be the, the option that would cost the least in, in human lives. This led to a really bizarre scenario where you had this tiny enclave uh, of the Vatican on Panamanian territory with Noriega inside, surrounded on all sides by the US Army who are afraid of, of just running in and grabbing him because of how it would be seen in largely Catholic South America. It would be yeah, his... you don't want to go to war with Catholicism if you can avoid Definitely it. Definitely not, not in South America. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Um, so on one side, you've got Noriega and uh, three to four of his high-ranking officials who is uh, living this semi-monk life uh, in, in uh, a cell, reading the Bible, um, apparently. Um, well, there's limited reading material in a, in a cell. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, ideally, he might have uh, uh, repented a little bit about some of the things he had done in the past. Then you had uh, Monsignor Laboa, who was trying to convince him to leave and also trying to separate him away from the other officials who were there with him because he felt that those officials were trying to encourage Noriega to seek asylum in another country, trying to sneak out. Um and then you have the U.S. Army uh, surrounding on all sides. So and how did they get him out? Uh, through the power of rock and roll. Uh, or at least that's how they attempted it. Um, they surrounded him. And again, this word PSYOPs, uh, Psychological Operations Unit, moved in and started blaring in uh, heavy metal music, trying to, I don't know, uh, rock him out of the, out of the Vatican <laughs> Embassy. Um uh, the, the Secretary of State, James Baker, wrote to the Pope 
personally, and wrote, this is an exception to diplomatic immunity. We've indicted him as a drug dealer. Now, the... the I don't think I said diplomatic immunity works, but... Uh... Yeah, no, absolutely not. That's, it's completely nonsense. Um, the playlist that the American, uh, the American Army played included Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins, Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, <laughs> Uh, there was also quite a lot of uh, Judas Priest and Twisted Sister, and completely bizarrely, Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover by Paul Simon. <laughs> um, so not a bad playlist overall. This, not a bad playlist. It's it, it's all right, depending on your taste. Like. I, I think the reason for this was that they were actually basically just channeling in the local army radio station, and people started calling in for requests that were kind of Noriega themed, uh, and. And I guess there was just some some U.S. Army guy who had gone through a bit of a breakup, completely uh, oblivious to what was going on around him, <laughs> and just really needed to hear Paul Simon's dulcet tones. Uh, I saw a really good quote about this uh, to describe this. Noriega loved opera. He got sticks. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So this was not his kind of music. No. But there was also, there was a dual reason for this. Uh, you know, partly it was kind of a show of force and to, you know, stop him from sleeping and all this kind of thing. But it was also to cover up the noise of negotiations and to prevent eavesdropping on any communications that were going on between the uh, uh, the Vatican and uh, the U.S. Army. Uh, eventually, uh, Monsignor Laboa threatened to evacuate all of his staff and declare a new embassy somewhere else, uh, leaving uh, Noriega with no option really but to surrender. Before he did, he wrote a, a letter to his wife uh, telling her that he was, I go, I go now on a new adventure. Um, That's not his, way of putting it. his new adventure has been uh, to be behind prison uh, bars for pretty much the rest of his life. Uh, he was given uh, thirty years by a U.S. court and was imprisoned in the U.S. Then eventually he was extradited to France uh, because he had uh, funneled funds over to France, and as they were the result of drug trafficking, he was. Uh, imprisoned there as well and very recently he was moved back to Panama where he is today still in prison right so modern Panama post just cause seems to be doing fine not bad not bad at all uh yeah modern Panama uh still I guess has some trouble with uh corruption particularly I believe in the judicial system among other things but uh mostly has sort of emerged from uh, the shadow of Noriega in a relatively, relatively decent fashion. Yeah, and, and so it's an unusual kind of American liberation that actually kind of worked okay. I, I believe in the 2000s, President Mireya Moscosco made great leaps in sort of getting, closing down a lot of corruption. So that was quite a popular move. Then uh, Omar Torrijos' son was elected president for a while. That's 2004, I yeah, think. 2004, that was unexpected. Yeah. Uh, which was also the same year that the country had a record $1 billion annual revenue from the canal. So taking ownership of the canal probably was a good move. So things are, are going onwards and upwards. And in the last decade or so, they've been widening the canal. And that, that work, I think, is nearly finished or soon to be finished uh, so that they can take larger ships and more of them yeah i believe the the class of ships uh is actually there are classes of ships named after uh the canal so there's a, a sort of a panamax 
a Panama ship is the, the largest ship that's able to pass through the canal. And now you have post-Panamax ships, I believe, that are, I, I believe are not able to pass through the canal currently. No, they're yeah. too big. So, so Panamax is the, the, the cuboidal shape that is big enough to fit through a, the canal. And, and so there's not really much point building a bigger ship if you want to yep. use the canal. Um, yeah, so, you know, it, modern Panama is a, a country of contrasts. Like the, mod, the capital city is very modern. As you say, half the population live there. But you also have indigenous people li- living in essentially palm huts out in the, in the rainforest. Uh, making a lot of their money off either agriculture or tourism, as people come to visit them and see their indigenous dances. You have kind of disparity between rich and poor within regions. So the kind of headline figures are that Panama's doing well. There is there is a bit of social incohesion, though, as a result of particularly uh, black and indigenous people are being poorer than... than um, mestizo and, and white people that's yes. kind of a, a feature of south america generally and some of the uh, well i guess a lot of, of the reports that i read of people uh that have been there mentioned that panama city is i mean it's very very close to the u.s now i, I suppose like a lot of uh cities around the world it's, it's been very much globalized so you've got you know, a lot, a, a strong presence of U.S. companies there. You know, you've got your McDonald's and Burger Kings and KFCs and that sort of thing, which is in very much stark contrast to, as you say, people living in the rainforest and in, in palm huts, uh, not too far away. And, and uh, many of the many of the more rural places are inaccessible to this day. There's still rainforests, and they're the, they still hide a lot in them. Uh, there's a lot to be discovered of that about that country still. Yes, yeah, so economically, kind of the canal is a very important feature. Banking and finance are important, and uh, I think food production is too. Things like bananas and cashews are grown there. Um, in fact, Panama disease is the name of the disease that killed off uh, a species of banana in the early twentieth century. The Gros Michel banana, which used to be the chief banana in the world, was killed off by this disease, um, and we now eat Cavendish bananas, which are a different. A different uh, line of banana, but of course that disease didn't come from Panama. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's one of two things that don't come from Panama that we call Panama, like the P- Panama disease. Ah, the comes Panama from... hats. Yeah. Yes, the Panama hats, uh, which were named so not because they come from Panama, but become they actually come from I think it's uh, Ecuador. Ecuador. Yeah. Yes, but Teddy Roosevelt was was, from, but... was photographed at the building site of the canal wearing one. You ship them through Panama to get to the US, so they became Panama. Yes, like almost everything else at the time, they were shipped through Panama uh, to get to the US or to get to Europe or uh, elsewhere. And were, I suppose, crates were stamped with, you know, uh, a seal of Panama ah, or the, yes. the word Panama, which uh, which met, led people to believe that they were uh, Panama hats. And that's where the name comes from. Uh, so we can blame Teddy Roosevelt for that. Uh, he also is, is the, the kind of subject of a fictional palindrome. So in, in, in 1948, Michael Lee Mercer published a letter in a magazine where he, he, he claims some link between Roosevelt. He, he described Roosevelt as, you know, he, he was a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, which is the same backwards and forwards. And people have enjoyed kind of, you know, you ask anyone about Panama, uh, an alarming percentage of them will shout that at you without explanation. Um, 
but people have kind of gone crazy in adding extra words to this palindrome to make it longer and longer. The longest one I've seen is about, I think, a thousand words generated by a computer. Wow. But I'll just give you a, a shorter one now. So we've got a man, a plan, a cat, a ham, a yak, a yam, a hat, a canal, Panama. And one hell of a birthday party. It sounds good. Um, so it can get out of hand pretty quickly. But a word like Panama with so many vowels and it just screams out, spell me backwards. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're that kind of a person. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I've shouted out some, uh, some strange things in the bedroom, but spell me backwards. <laughs> that, that's one for the future. Ah, <laughs> uh, cram. So I think that's it for today. If you've made it this far, I suppose thank you very much. We've gone way, way over time today, but there was just so much to fit into this episode. I'm, I'm currently wafting a, a whole page of notes that we didn't even touch in front of the microphone for... So we, we might we might get a might get a chance to put some more on our blog, which would be uh, that'll yeah. be 80dayspodcast.com. That's uh, also where you'll find all the details of the music used in this episode. And a special thank you to Thomas O'Boyle, who composed our intro music, which you heard at the top of the show. Uh, if you'd like to keep up with us, you can follow us at 80 Days Podcast on Twitter or find us on Facebook under the same name. Uh, we also have to give special shout outs this week to Dave Greeley, Michael Andrews, John Dunphy Welsh, and Connor McGarry, all whom identified the uh, outline of Panama on our Facebook page this week. If you uh, enjoyed this episode or the show in general, we'd really, really appreciate you heading over to iTunes to leave us a review. One of our latest reviews comes from Aiden Ward from the US who says, if you're looking to better understand the planet that you live on, I should say that 80 Days offers a well-nigh unrivaled return on the investment of half an hour. We may have gone just a shade over half an hour this week, but uh, we really appreciate all of you that stuck with us to the end. Mark, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, if anybody out there wants to... Uh, spell me backwards, as it were. Uh, you can find me on Mark Boyle eighty six or at Mark Boyle eighty six on Twitter, uh, and also my blog is the Toner of Leak on WordPress. And Joe on Twitter, I go by at on Burnach A N B E I R N E A C H. If you want to find more from me, you can find me at LukeJKelly.com or at the Luke J Kelly. Thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you guys in the next one. In my head, I said, Panama is one great big pussy waiting to get fucked. Who's got the biggest cock of them all? Ferdinand de Lesseps is going to carve out a canal with his big ding dong donger. Something like that. Was, I thought that in my head and then I started laughing at it. So, anyway, uh, I don't think the audio contaminated anybody else. Uh, feel free to include or disinclude that. Uh, <laughs>